Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 44, with Pastor John King. Thank you, Miss Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're continuing on in the book of Mark. Today we'll be finishing up chapter 12. So if you could please uh, turn with me to verses 28 through 44. Uh, real quickly from last week, we saw a, uh, you know, we're at, the, we're at this place where Jesus is in the Passion Week and he's, he's in the temple grounds, he's there teaching outside and he's drawing quite a bit of attention and he's had a series of questions being asked of him and so we saw last week, uh, since Jesus had a common enemy, many groups were coming together that normally wouldn't ally together, the Pharisees and Herodians came together, and they, they came after Jesus with some questions. Um, and they approached Jesus with this very famous question about whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, whether it's the right thing to do. And we know they were trying to set him up. A yes answer would discredit Jesus with the people because they opposed paying taxes to a foreign conqueror. But a no answer would cause him to be arrested by the Roman authorities for opposing the law and threatening a revolt. So Jesus had to use a very simple uh, illustration to, sh to prove his point. He had him get a denarius, a Roman coin, and we saw on one side was the head of Caesar, on the other was his name. And he says, look, you've already given in. You've already used this currency. You've already rendered unto Caesar. So he says, the point was, you know, you've already, you're asking me a silly question. Of course, uh, the, the answer was really, look, we pay our taxes and we, we do what the government calls us to do that's lawful. And then we also render unto God. So it's, it's a balance. As Christians, we live a balanced life. We're not lawbreakers. We're ones who abide by the law. Unless we're put in a position of having to decide between what the government tells us to do and what God tells us to do. That's always going to be the case. We're going to follow God. So he silenced them, and then these, these crazy Sadducees came up, and they asked him this really weird hypothetical question concerning um, a woman who had cycled through, somehow cycled through seven husbands and never had a child, uh, and you know, started out with the man, and then uh, the Levitical or Leverite law of marriage says that you're supposed to, uh, if, a, if a brother, if a woman, uh, if a man is widow or woman is widowed and she doesn't have any children, then her brother is supposed to step in and to uh, keep the family line going. But they ask this ridiculous question, uh, and kind of Jesus is like, "Look, first of all, you guys, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You haven't read the scriptures, and obviously, you don't understand the power of God." Um, so he affirmed the fact that the resurrection is real because we know the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And he also pointed out, he gave a little bit more clarity about what it's going to be like in heaven because he's saying, look, marriage is not going to be uh, something that you do in heaven. It's not that you won't know one another. But the main point was that future life and relationships will be equal to that experienced by the angels and God. And it's an amazing, it was an amazing thought as we looked at that. But they, again, they didn't know two things that we need to know, and that is, first of all, the Scriptures, and second of all, the power of God. And he warned them about that, and, and it was a warning for us as well. So today, as we close out this section in the Gospel of Mark, 
our passage will cover two more questions. One more from a scribe, and he'll ask that famous question, which is the first commandment of all? And then a question from Jesus himself, and he asks a question uh, mainly to, to draw attention to who people say he is. He goes, how can David call his descendant Lord? So we'll go through that. And after answering that, Jesus is going to give two warnings, a warning against pride and a, a, of the scribes and a warning against the pride of the rich. A warning against those who think they're religious and think they have it all together and a warning against the pride of those who, who feel like they have the resources to uh, live apart from God, if you will, and, and treat God as sort of a, uh, a hobby. Well, let's look at... Uh, Verses 28 through 44 today in uh, chapter 12. And we'll start with verse 28. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, and he said, Well, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared to question him. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him, him Lord. How is it then, or how is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Verse 38, then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour a widow's houses for, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. And Lord, we ask that it would enter our minds and it would penetrate our, our hearts if we have a hard heart today, if we've come with problems that we've carried in here today lord let us take the time to just let it all go We're, we know lord that you assure us in your word that this is a safe place for all of us who believe in you and who trust in you as lord and savior and so lord let us enjoy our time in the sanctuary today 
under your word, under the teaching of your word, Lord God. Let it be a blessing to us that we might be a blessing to others. Let it be as a refreshing stream, a cool drink of water for a weary and parched people. Lord, you know we're, we're tired. We, uh, we have a world around us that's gone uh, crazier by the day. But Lord, we come to you because we trust in you. We know that you have all the answers for life and eternity. And so, Lord, we ask that you go before us. Fill us all with your Holy Spirit. May that be our heart's desire, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we might do the things that you call us to do, Lord God, not out of compulsion, not out of obligation, but freely and willingly come to you, knowing that you provide, that you will care for us, and that you love us. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, today we have a, a very, uh, starts out with one of the scribes coming. And as we said, he keeps getting people coming at him, you know. Uh, and he's batting a thousand so far, if you haven't noticed. See, Jesus was, spoke with all authority. And he wasn't going to be uh, tricked and he wasn't going to be fooled by the people who were coming to him with their motives and their agendas. But here we have kind of a unique situation here in verse 28. It says that then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well. What, what does that mean? Well, he apparently had been listening to Jesus' conversation. He was listening to how well they listened, or excuse me, how well he answered their questions. So this scribe came with a kind of a noticeably different tone, if you will. Yes, he was sent by the Pharisees. But it didn't seem as though he was really seeking himself to discredit Jesus. He was trying actually to improve his acquaintance with him. You may have had that experience as you've come to know the Lord. You may have found that, you know what, I'm tired of saying no to God. And, and through Jesus, I think I, I want to hear more about what he has to say. And that, of course, may have led to your salvation. Now, these scribes, we learn who they are. They're, they're like lawyers. They're like, in this case, a very specialized lawyer. You know how when you need a special attorney to deal with special situations, whether it's selling a property or, you know, uh, you want to sue somebody. No, we don't do that. But you want to sue somebody or you need a good criminal lawyer, whatever the case may be, I hope you never do. But there are different lawyers with different uh, specialties. And in, in this case, this scribe, this grammatian is what they would call him, had a very, uh, he specialized in dealing more with the study and the application, or excuse me, the interpretation of the law of Moses. And so, you know, he had been listening from a previous, you know, he, uh, he, he heard them reasoning together. And because of his background, this scribe perceived that Jesus answered well. In other words, Jesus had good credibility with this man. The man was impressed by Jesus' answers. And so he asked the question, which is the first commandment of all? Which, which, which one has the highest rank? Which, which uh, commandment of God is the highest honor? You know, because we're going to talk about the fact that they had so many to go by at this point. Now, is that a fair question? Yes, it is. All commandments that come from God are great because God is great. But we also know that some are greater than others. 
some commandments are greater than others. So it is a fair question. But we're kind of back to why was he asking him this question? Matthew 22, verse 34 says that but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees in the, in the most previous, previous encounter with the Sadducees, they were silenced. And so the Pharisees gathered together once again. In other words, okay, let's huddle up again. Let's figure out how we're going to take this guy down because he is really causing problems for us. And we're afraid that if he continues on, he's going to start to uh, get some more people to follow him. Right now he only has, you know, the 12 apostles. But if he continues on in his public teaching, the people are going to be really glad to hear what he has to say and we're going to lose our power and our influence. So we need to do something about this guy. Now Matthew and Luke both state that the scribe was indeed testing Jesus. And many think that he was sent by the Pharisees. It certainly fits the pattern of their attempt to discredit Jesus. But notice, we do see a different attitude in this man, and that is one of sincerity. Our sincerity as we come to the Lord. You know, it's one thing to ask a question with ulterior motives, not really believing what you're saying as you try to butter somebody up is what they were doing earlier. But it's a whole other story to come with sincerity. Now, why are they in this question? Why would you, I mean, what, you, you kind of need to understand the context of the, the historic uh, situation. The scribes had determined by now that the Jews were obligated to obey 613 precepts in the law. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments anymore. It wasn't just what uh, Moses gave to them in, uh, in Exodus. There were 365 negative precepts and there were 248 positive so one of their favorite exercises these these uh, it'd be like a bunch of pastors sitting around and saying hey which is the greatest commandment you know somebody a bunch of bible scholars sitting in a seminary going well, which one do you think is the greatest and one of their pastimes was to sit around and debate which of these 600 <laughs> uh, or uh, 13, you know, 365 negative, 248 positive, which one's the greatest? I mean, that, that was one of the things they did uh, in their spare time, I suppose. A strange situation. So you could imagine just how confusing things could be. All these rules to abide by. No one could possibly keep track of them, let alone keep them. You know, it reminds us sometimes of our law. You know, with the IRS and our tax laws and all the different laws that we have on the books. And it's why you need specialists, why you hire specialists. So the question among them was often discussed. Which commandment must be absolutely obeyed? You know, we can't keep them all, so let's figure out which ones we are the most important. And that's natural what's going to happen when you live in a legalistic religious society. But of course, Jesus brings clarity to everything. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus summarized how they got themselves wrapped around the axle in their religious system. You may be familiar, Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. These are very small things. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, yes, you should tithe, but don't neglect the other things, is what Jesus is telling them. 
But they'd gotten themselves, you know, again, wrapped around the axle. But back to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Various groups had different, differing opinions. Some believed circumcision was the greatest. Sacrifices and Sabbath. Keeping all those things. And they hoped that him, the Pharisees, his enemies, they hoped that by stating this position, Jesus would upset somebody. You see, there, you know, maybe not this man who was being sincere, but the question itself that was brought forth was intended to get Jesus to say something to get somebody upset at him. Because he would have to choose sides. And you know, we, we hate to have to do that because we know we're not going to make everybody happy. And so there was a strong possibility that a man giving his judgment would seem to be lessening the weight of certain things. So it was a very, it was a very uh, charged, politically charged environment. But really, we, you know, maybe for you and I, we can pause for just a second and ask yourself a question. Kind of look at ourselves and say, uh, how do we get locked into certain things in our walk with Jesus? That we, in, in fact, forget the important matters, you know. Uh, maybe a scratch on the floor becomes more important than the people. Maybe um, we major in the minors while we minor in the major things. We're, we're famous for doing that, aren't we? Getting all wrapped around the axle about stuff. So Jesus answered him in verse 29. He says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. A very important beginning. Unlike previous encounters, Jesus replied instantly to what the man had to say. You know, it wasn't like, well, let me ask you a question, because he knew their motives. He knew the man was sincere, and he may have been sent by the Pharisees, but Jesus managed to penetrate his heart. You know, Jesus starts to get his way in your heart and things start to change. And so he starts out with this quote from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you break that down, you see the Lord with capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh, Jehovah. There is no other. Then you say our God, talking about a personal relationship. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. And then we say the Lord is one. He is the focus and the concentration of our life, our attention, our worship, our love and praise. He should be the one. He's the only subject of our devotion. There's no reason and there's no excuse for distraction by any other subject because he is the one Lord. He is the only subject. Exodus 20 Verses 2 and 3 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. See, there's truly only one God. And he's saying, there's only one God, and I am that God. Now, in quoting from Deuteronomy 6, Jesus was reminding them of their own confession of faith. You know, you've heard of the creeds. The, the, we have the creeds in our, in our Christian heritage. And for the Jews, this is what's known as the Shema, which is a command to hear. The word Shema is a command to hear. And devout Jews, even to this very day, recite this passage, Deuteronomy 6.4, twice a day. And in, in a devout Jewish household, 
As soon as a child can speak, especially a male child, they're taught this, Shema. First thing they learn. The full passage from Deuteronomy 6, 4, 6, 4 through 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Again, affirming that there is one God, the Lord, our God. Now Jesus says, and he is to be loved. If there's one God, the Lord, our God, then he is to be loved. Verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is a personal and close relationship. It's alive and active. It's not just some thing, some random thing. Because you want to love the Lord with your whole being. And then he breaks it down in an interesting way. He starts out with the heart, and then he goes to the soul, the mind, and the strength. The heart. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's, that's Greek word is cardia. Now in a physical sense, the heart is the most important part of your body. Many, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And so by using your heart as a figure of speech, the Bible is placing the importance of your entire moral and mental activity right there in your heart. You know, the Bible describes our heart as also a place of human depravity. The heart is wicked because sin is a principle which has its seat in the center of our inward uh, life, and it defiles everything about us, our sin nature. But on the other hand, Scripture records the heart as the sphere of divine influence. It's what lies deep within us, not in the physical sense, but it contains our, the hidden man, the real person, the one God sees. It represents the true character, but it also conceals it. Our body conceals. Our, our, we're able to hide that, but not from God. And so he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now that word uh, is psyche. It's where we get the word psyche from. Psyche in the Greek. In the physical sense, this, it's the, excuse me, the soul of the breath of life. Some of your Eastern religions talk about this inner breath that you have. And it's, it's the, you know, kind of the breath of life. It's what animates us. It, what's, it's what makes a body made from clay and then the Lord breathed into us, gave us the breath of life. It's also the seat of personality. It differs from the physical body because it's not dissolved by death. Our, our body will be resurrected, we know that, but there may be a time when our body is separate from our soul um, if, we, if we die before the rapture. And so it's one of these eternal things. Our soul is eternal. And it's sometimes in Scripture, it's, it's kind of interchangeable with the heart, if you will. And then Jesus says, with all your mind. 
dianoa. This is the faculty of understanding and feeling and desiring as you reflect and think things over. In two senses. One, in the good sense, it's the part of you that is renewed by the Holy Spirit. It's renewed by the Word of God. But in the bad sense, it can be our false imagination, uh, a perverted moral impulse, or evil thoughts. So he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and with all your strength. In other words, your physical strength is to the extent of your ability. But keep in mind, we don't, we don't really move in our own strength. As Christians, Ephesians 6.10, it says, Paul said, or he said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We're always having to remind ourselves that we can't do things in our own strength. We're always having to remind ourselves, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Now you may notice, if you're a Bible student, you may notice that Jesus added to the Deuteronomy 6.5 passage. He added the phrase, with all your mind. This was brought forth by Jesus himself. Many believe that this is a clarification of God's intention that nothing should be held back from God. In the Old Testament, the heart was considered the place of decision-making. That would be considered that. But in the New Testament, and with the influence of Greek thought, because the Greeks put a very high premium on the mind, the influence of Greek thought, Jesus himself has added that because he understands who he's speaking with. He's speaking to a Hellenized culture of Jews that have long been infiltrated by the world. We talked on Wednesday night about Alexander the Great, one of the great uh, kingdoms of the, of the past. And one of the things that the Greeks were so famous for was not only Alexander the Great's military uh, conquer ability, but they would bring their entire culture to bear on people. The arts and music and speech and philosophy. And that's where you get this term Hellenistic culture, Hellenistic Jews, because they were influenced by the Greeks. And the Romans were influenced by the Greeks as well. So the first commandment really is, is you know, God is hero Israel. God is, God is one. He's the God and he is a God to be loved. And then he goes on and he says the second like it is this. Now the scribe didn't ask for the second greatest commandment. He was only asking for the greatest. But Jesus gave it anyway. And he, he quoted there from Leviticus 19.18. We won't read that now. But by giving this commandment, he showed that the two could not be separated. If you love God, you, you, you've got to love your brother and sister. If we love God with all of our being, then we will love our neighbor as well. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself or as you already do love yourself. Who doesn't love themselves? Don't raise your hand. It comes natural. Loving others, however, does not come natural. And we're going to talk about that. Now, if you looked at the same account in Luke 10, verse 29, the man kind of wanted to justify himself at this point. He's like, well, you know, Jesus, he said, uh, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus proceeded to give him a very a long, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. And then he gave him a very long parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. Jesus declared to the Jewish people that the neighbors 
that they were to love as themselves. And this included their hated enemies, the Gentiles. You know, true uh, systematic racism was in place at that time. You can bet that. That was happening right there. And they hated anybody who wasn't a Jew. In 1 John 4, 20-21, it says, If someone says, Jesus says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How, excuse me, if he uh, does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have for him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And then Jesus finally, he is, finishing his answer, he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. In fact, over in Matthew 22, verse 40, it says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Together they sum up the entire Ten Commandments, the first four which demand features related to love for God, and the last six of the Ten Commandments describe features of love for man. So that and all the, the words of the prophets, if you keep those two, if you wanted to boil it down and simplify it, and thank you that he has, if you keep those two, then you've, you've met, you know, you, you've done well. Just as Moses declared the law of God to the next generation of Israelites as he prepared them to enter the promised land, Jesus quotes from Moses' own words. Moses had urged his people to love the Lord because love is the greatest motive for obedience. Love is the greatest motive for obedience. And so, in this next section... You could see, you might say, you know, if you were that scribe or, or, and you were listening to what Jesus said, you might say what we would say today. You got that right. You got that right, Jesus. You, you, you understand it. Mark 12, uh, 32 to 34. Look at verse 32. It says, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but He. And then he says in verse 33, he says, And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All the burnt offerings and sacrifices that they had spent centuries of doing these, this, this ritual that God had given them to atone for their sins. They would offer these burnt offerings and sacrifice. But this, this command, and this command to love God, was worth more to God than all of that. Because they were given sacrifices for themselves to atone for their sins. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, you've heard this verse many times. It says, Samuel said, uh, he's asking Saul, he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Again, God doesn't want us to be religious and mechanical and robotic in our approach to Him. 
He wants us to love him. So now in verse 34, it says, When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, in other words, wisely, this man, you know, it wasn't being, you know, he was sensible, he was discreet, he had some understanding. The, the scribe not only affirmed what Jesus said, he restated it in such a way as to indicate that he understands the difference between the letter and the spirit of the law. Sometimes that's a real test of whether we understand something. Instead of reading it off the page, we can put it into our own words and have a deeper understanding. A lot of times we may do that when we're journaling or you know, if you're in school, if you're a student and you're studying or you're given a test. And Jesus said to him, he goes, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What a strange thing to say. We often, you know, we often say, well, Jesus is saying, you're either going to be hot or cold. This is true. You're either going to be you know, lukewarm and I'll spit you out of my mouth, or you're going to be cold or you're going to be on fire for me. And here we see him saying, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Just because someone's part of a certain group that appears to be opposed to the gospel, and this is very important for us today in our time, just because someone is part of a certain group that you think doesn't love Christianity, doesn't love Jesus, doesn't want to know and hear more from Jesus, there are always individuals that are open to the truth. We run into the one of the biggest problems we're going to have in the coming days is by, by the, the, the weight and, the, and, the, and the, the power, if you will, of secular culture as it increases. Without a revival, it's going to increase. And it's going to hold more sway on Christians. And we, we need to remember that there are still people who we may consider to be enemies that are open to the gospel. And Jesus saw this right away. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. If you keep walking in that direction, you're going to get saved. <laughs> That's what he's saying, right? Now this is the first and the only time in any of the Gospels where a religious leader of Israel calls, calls Jesus right or correct in a, in a public setting. The only time. In affirming Jesus, the scribe, the scribe had found a, you know, kind of a kidness, kindred spirit, and he quoted Scripture right back at him. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, Jesus heard in the man's reply evidence of a potential follower. He was not yet a believer. He was not yet a disciple. Unlike his peers, however, this scribe was facing the, in the right direction. At this rate, he would become a believer in Jesus the Messiah soon enough. And this little seg segment ends, this end of this verse, it says, but after that, no one dared question him. After this encounter, Jesus was not tested again with trick questions by his enemies. Now, from our perspective, he had passed every single test. But from their point of view, he had failed every test. But they had failed to trap him. In fact, one writer put it this way. Um, it's interesting to note why the Pharisees and scribes did not question him any longer. Why did they stop? It's like, we're done. Why did they want to stop? Well, every time they questioned him, they dug a hole deeper for themselves. His opponents realized that they'd come close to losing one of their own. When they started to see this scribe turning his heart towards Christ, they're like, wait a minute. 
we aren't getting anywhere. This tactic isn't working. And we know that, you know, the, their solution was to kill him. Before they lose anyone else. So they backed away and they stopped asking. But notice that Jesus will never turn away anyone who comes to him with sincerity. <clears throat> now, you know, up to this point, as I'm studying this, and, and you guys may be thinking similar thoughts, we understand the commandment that says that we're to love one another, that we're to love God first, and that we're to love others as we love ourselves. And we recognize that it is indeed the greatest commandment. But you also quickly recognize that this is one of the most consistent areas of sin, personal sin in your life. You come to recognize that we often fail to keep this commandment. It's one thing to say it. And it, here we have what we call one of the, the greatest mysteries of all. And that's the mystery of God's divine grace. His grace. Simply being told to keep the commandments is never enough. Never enough. The Jews proved that over and over again. Our relationship with God can only find fulfillment through a relationship with Jesus. That's the whole reason why, we're, why Jesus is the center and the focus why we talk about Jesus so much. And when I've placed my trust in Him, I learn from His Word that He is gently, gentle and lowly of heart. I learn that He is compassion, that He was happy, He was happy to endure the cross in order to see you and I forgiven. That He's able to sympathize with every single temptation, though He never sinned. And that he can and does gently deal with our sin. And that he will never cast us out. And it goes on and on and on when we understand the importance of a relationship with Jesus. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you have an NIV... It reads the same, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. In his book uh, titled Gentle and Lowly by a, a writer named Dane Ortland, he writes this. He says, divine grace is so radical that it reaches down and turns around our very desires. Our eyes are opened. Christ becomes beautiful. We come to Him. And anyone, whoever, is welcome. We do not come to a set of doctrines. We do not come to a church. We do not even come to the gospel. All of these are vital. But most truly, we come to a person that is to Christ Himself. So, Again, I, see, I think he's what he's saying, this divine grace, this mystery of divine grace being so radical that it actually changes you. Because you look at these commandments, uh, you look at your neighbor, and depending on the day of the week, 
You may have no love for either, if we're being honest. I may have no love for the Lord, and I may have no love for others. Apart from my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important for you and I to press in and to abide in Him. And keep pressing and keep abiding. So by the time, and, and nobody's arrived, this is a daily decision that you and I make. But our obedience to His commands now becomes a response to His love. When you consider the love of Jesus and all the things we've talked about so far, and you could go on and on, now I can obey because I respond to Jesus' love, not because I was told to by somebody. And how do I respond? Well, one way is that I love God with all my mind by studying His Word and learning about Him. I love God with all my heart by allowing Him to open up to my wounded emotions, if you will. Being honest with God. Crying out to God. And I love God with all my soul and my strength by making myself available to Him and to His work. Saying, I surrender to you, Lord. I, 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 I give up. I am once again sick and tired of being sick and tired of me doing my own thing. And I surrender my life to you. That happens at your salvation. And that should happen each and every day. And we need to be encouraged to do that. And so that's why we're here today, to be encouraged for that. Now moving on, Jesus asks a very important question sort of tied to that. You know, they're, they're done asking their questions. Now it's his turn to ask a question. Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. He asks this important question. Really, it relates to the question he asked his apostles a while back. Who do men say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah, or you're, you know, you're John the Baptist, or you're, the, you're a prophet, you're a great this, that, and the other thing. Just a man, basically. But then he says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you're the Christ. You're the, you're the one. That was Peter's response. So he revisits this question, but now with the enemies standing before him, and to them. And he answered and he said, well, he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? The son of David was a common term because they, they knew their Old Testament and they knew that Messiah would come through the lineage of David, from David. Matthew twenty two forty one and 42 reads this way. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So that was their mindset. They had a, a fairly, even though they expected the Messiah to be a great conqueror, they still had a very a fairly low opinion of who the, who the Messiah truly was. Jesus is trying to get them to see that of their conception of the Messiah was, was weak. It, it, they didn't understand. The angel Gabriel, who sent from heaven, spoke to Mary in Luke 1.32, talking about the Messiah. He said, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
And Jesus, back to his question, he says, you know, why, why do scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And then he says in verse 36, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. The Lord, L-O, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, and he asks another question. He says, therefore, David calls himself Lord. Excuse me, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? That This wouldn't work in that society. Uh, uh, a king would never call his child uh, Lord. It would never happen. And notice at the end of verse 37 that the common people heard him gladly. So in this verse 37, therefore David calls him, calls him Lord, how is he then his son? In this question, Jesus pointed out that God the Holy Spirit had revealed to David that his sovereignty was only an earthly sovereignty. God had revealed that already to David. But the sovereignty of the Messiah, who would in fact come from his lineage, was from God. He was God. And so here you are, and, and he's telling them this, and then again we see, but the common people, the average people, the non-religious type people, the blue-collar workers, if you will, those visiting from other places, they heard him gladly. They liked what Jesus was saying. Again, these, these, these scribes and Pharisees did not like what Jesus was saying. But to the average person, Jesus' speech was appealing he once again recognized that Jesus taught with authority. Again, they're getting themselves in trouble when they allow him to speak publicly. Because the people are, hey, tell us more. Because they were weary of the Pharisaic, legalistic religion that had been placed upon them. It was like a heavy burden. And no doubt, many of them would believe. Many of them would come to be part of the early church after Pentecost. Matthew twenty two forty six says, and no one was able to answer him a word. When the question that Jesus asked, you know, they couldn't even they couldn't answer him. And nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. There was no contest. Imagine if Jesus had continued his teaching for an extended period of time. This was only a couple days in the Passion Week. It wasn't going to be long before he would celebrate the Passover with his apostles, and then he would be arrested in the garden. This is literally a couple days away from where he is now. But Jesus was asking, he was, notice God's compassion. Notice God's love. He was asking the question. I mean, he, he doesn't want to leave and, and not give them the chance to receive him as Lord and Savior, in other words. He was asking the question in order to give them all the chance to recognize that the Messiah was not simply a great man who would deliver their nation from the Romans, but that he was Messiah and that Messiah was God. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, was standing right before their very eyes. And yet they were blind to see. Tragic, isn't it? 
tragic when you tell somebody, especially a loved one, especially somebody in your family who you, you're dear, you know, in your heart, you have a dear connection with them, and they will not receive what you have to say. In fact, maybe, unfortunately, maybe the relationship has reached a point where you don't even go there anymore because you know your words would be wasted. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that you and I, in sharing our faith and sharing the gospel with people, have closed their blind. They're too blind to see. Well, the Bible explains all that to us, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we get emotional about that sometimes. It, it angers us. You see, these religious leaders sort of had a partial gospel. And this is important for us to, to understand. They had a, a partial gospel. They taught that the Messiah would bring honor to their national heritage instead of honoring glory to the Messiah himself. Instead of bringing glory to Jesus and to God, which is God's glory, we, don't, we have no right to it, they thought it would bring honor to their national heritage. Now in a similar way, we risk... Being able to preach the truth, the truth of the gospel, but not being able to defend it. 1 Peter 3.15 He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. In our next segment of today's study, we see Jesus' warning. He gives a warning and a lesson about true spirituality. Verse 38, that he said to them in his teaching, now here he is standing in front of the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people, because typically Jesus would gather a large crowd, and they're on this huge 60-acre complex called the Temple Mount. And here he is... Uh, excuse me, 30-acre complex. Um, and here he is saying, while they're in his presence, he says to the people and to his apostles, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplace. <laughs> Watch out for these guys, these re religious leaders. Now, Matthew 23 has a, a much longer indictment. I'm not going to go there today. But if you read the, uh, the passage from Matthew 23, what he had to say publicly about these scribes. Uh, one example, seven times he repeats the famous words, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven times, and then he goes on and he explains why. So this is not just a uh, mild approach, like you, you kind of see it here with, with uh, Mark. Matthew is much, much more um, of an indictment. It says they go around in long robes, is what he said. Now, now, most of the scribes would walk around like the Pharisees. They walk around in these long white robes. You've seen it in the movies, where they've got these long white robes, and they're just all in splendor, and they walk through the town, and they walk to the marketplace, and they love to have them greet, Hello, Rabbi, today, good day. They were putting on a, a religious show, if you will. It's like putting on a real fancy three-piece suit and go shopping at Walmart. <laughs> Hoping to be seen by others. <laughs> Sorry if you happen to like to wear suits. 
And they wanted the best seats in the synagogues, the best place. You know, they just wanted to be the center of attention wherever they went. Recently, Jesus admonished John and James for their desire to have their heavenly seats. You know, they wanted the front row tickets. They wanted the best seats in heaven. But notice in verse 40, who devour widows' houses, excuse me, houses, houses, who devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, that means that they would worm their way in, especially to a wealthy widow, so that they could get her to sign over all of her inheritance to the synagogue, to their needs. This was a common thing. Jesus was pointing them out for that. Devour widows' houses. We've all heard the story of the rich aunt or uncle, usually, uh, you know, it's somebody who would be, uh, you know, the, the, all, the, all the relatives were waiting to see who would get their share of the inheritance, right? And in comes somebody that from outside of the family and talks that wealthy widow into giving away her entire fortune to some university for some wing as an endowment. I heard that story because it's true in my family. It actually happened to my dad. Anyway, uh, in, in any event, this is the kind of thing that was common. And also, too, he says, they, for a pretense, they make long prayers. You know, they just love to hear themselves speak. It's a, it's a reminder for all of us, especially for somebody who stands here and speaks publicly, uh, not to be so um, wordy sometimes for pretense and he says for those they will receive a greater condemnation in other words if you're in a position of uh, religious uh, authority and that applies to everyone a parent a grandparent somebody who's raising and teaching children is serving in a ministry and you're bringing God's truth and you represent God to them you uh, you and I will stand a greater condemnation if we forsake that if we abuse that So moving along quickly, it says, in contrast to their greed, Jesus now notices the worship of the poor widow. In other words, Mark wanted us to see what Jesus saw that day. And so after this, this question and answer and this, this back and forth, Jesus now says in verse 1241, it says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. The temple treasury was located in the court of women. Remember we saw that we put up a graphic a couple of weeks ago and you had this temple area, the court of the Gentiles is where the temple was in the middle and in successive courts, they got larger and larger until they were out in this, this court of the Gentiles, which was the largest area. Well, the next largest area was the court of women, getting closer to the temple. And this is where you would go to give your tithes and offerings. And only, only uh, you know, non-Gentiles couldn't go there. And so here Jesus, he came, he went to that area because knowing they'd be giving their offerings and he sat and he watched. And it says, the, and many who were rich put in much. You know, he's watching what's going on. Now, uh, historians say that there were actually 13 treasuries. And uh, they were in this court and there was this fixed number of places and they had a very large open mouth where you would come and you would put your coins in and your money. And it, had this, it was in the shape of a trumpet, these 13 locations. And this was how they would receive the offerings of the people devoted to service, uh, you know, to 
basically keep the temple going, the offering of incense and sacrifice, etc. And then it says here, and then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. Uh, two mites. This is a very small brass coin. It came, comes from the Greek word lepton. It's almost like peeling off a shim of very thin material. It was a fraction of a penny. The smallest coin in circulation. Now one writer put it this way, each sliver of copper was worth one hundredth of a denarius. So if a denarius equals one day's wage, she offered one fiftieth of a day laborer's income. And so Jesus sees this and he calls his disciples in verse 43, he called his disciples to himself and he says to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put more in than all these who have given to the treasury. All the money that's come into the treasury, this woman has given more. All the money that he's, he's witnessed. And no doubt it was quite a bit. There were thousands of people there. David Guzik writes this, Jesus' principle here shows us that God does not need our money. If God needed our money, then how much we give would be more important than our heart in giving. This is the, this is the heart of the matter. Instead, it is our privilege to give to Him, and we need to give, give because it is good for us, not because it's good for Him. He went on to point out the, uh, Jesus to His disciples. He said in verse 44, for they all put in out of their abundance. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, they gave out of what they really didn't need. There, there was no sense of self-denial. It, it wasn't a real pinch for them to throw a, a quarter in the offering. or you know, There wasn't a real pinch for them to throw uh, lots of money into the offering. They gave what they could spare without feeling it. It's, it's a, something to understand for us. And he says, but, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Her entire livelihood she put in. And the woman noticed she didn't call attention to herself. Oftentimes they say uh, when somebody came to bring a big offering, I heard one person say that sometimes they would bring a trumpeter with them to make an announcement before they put all the money in. You know, it's like those, you know, those coin machines at Food Lion or something. They put those things in a weird place, don't they? Don't tell me you've never gone there and put some coins in there. <laughs> in any event, she didn't call attention to herself. But she was elevated by Jesus for all time. Although she was poor, she gave all that she had. You see, God doesn't look at the amount of money a person gives, but on the attitude of which we give it. It's the attitude. This may kind of help answer Peter's question, or excuse me, Jesus' question to Peter when he talked to the Lord back in chapter 10. And, he, and Peter said to the Lord, See, Lord, we have left all that we have and followed you. And so we learn from this that those of us who give sacrificially will never be forgotten by God, no matter how much it is. And so with this illustration, Jesus ends his entire public ministry. 
Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, Pride of living and pride of giving are sins that we must avoid at all costs. How tragic that the leaders depended on a religious system that shortly would pass off the scene. How wonderful that a common people gladly listened to Jesus and obeyed his word. And they asked the question, in which group are you? Which one are you in? Where do you and I stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would just simply help us to keep it simple and to understand, Lord, what it means to love you. That it's tied to our love for you and our deep relationship with you. It's a response of all that you've done for us, Lord. As we abide in you, may we be strengthened. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us hope and help in time of need. Thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us. That you love us with an everlasting love. As we grow deeper in you, we thank you, Lord. Go before us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand. We're going we're gonna to recite a passage from number six. The words will be put up for you on the board. And let's read these words together and then James will lead us in a song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.